Welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hassera, and for over 24 years, I flew the KC-135 Stratotanker, going all over the world passing gas for a living. But I am also a joint warfighter, and today we're going to talk about that from the Cold War era of the 1960s and 70s. Special thanks to Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar for sponsoring this episode of our show. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most captivating and engaging pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our guests relate some of their stories from these extraordinary and extreme aviation operations from around the world. But most importantly, we explore their lessons learned to give our listeners practical advice on how does the aviation world work and expands critical thinking skills and expertise in the air and on the ground. And the stories and lessons learned you're going to hear today have never been told before. On today's show, you're going to hear from a Navy captain, now retired, who flew P-2V Neptune and P-3 Orion maritime patrol and anti-submarine warfare airplanes. And wait till you hear some of the tactics, techniques, and procedures these guys used during the height of the Cold War to hunt Russian submarines and Russian intelligence collection ships. He had some very interesting weapons he was carrying and some very interesting places they were operating out of. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit show with retired Navy Captain Frank Ellis. Frank, welcome to the Lessons from the Cockpit show. Thanks for being on with us today. Yeah, Mike, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, particularly somebody with your background of chasing subs during the Cold War. I mean, the cold, cold war that many of us experienced, but not like you did in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, we uh, we were aggressive young rascals and fearless, I'll tell you. It was, uh, when I think back upon some of the stuff I did, it makes me shudder. <laughs> 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 Tempting fate with the great, you know, thinking about uh, those Russian uh, uh, ships with Turk training their guns on us with some 17-year-old Russian kid with his finger on the trigger, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They lit us up with fire control radar and everything when you'd run in on them. What I did was uh, I was in patrol squadrons, three three patrol squadrons in the years about 60, 66 to about the very end of 69. The first one was Patrol Trot Squadron 18 out of Rosie Roads, Puerto Rico. And that was more or less a a follow-on to the uh, – Cuban Missile Crisis, we were basically just doing patrol missions all around Cuba and in that area to make sure no Russian ships were, were getting through to Cuba with missiles on their decks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of that. And one of the funny stories, though, they had a thing called the Ready One, but you being in SAC, you were familiar with that. You know, you sit around the ready room in your flight suit, you know, waiting for a call. I so remember we it to, well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we had the same thing. You know, we would have the Ready One. So it was like a Sunday morning or something like that. 
And I was a co-pilot at the time. And I got assigned to this crew that I didn't normally fly on. Aircraft commander was a guy, a Lieutenant Larry Berryman. And he talked with a gravelly voice. Hey, Frank. Hey, how you doing, Frank? And, the way guys, <laughs> you know, and they called us out. And, well, Larry had been partying the night before, and he was not happy to be called out at Zero Dark Thirty to, to launch. And what it was, was it was a, a Russian spy trawler that had been detected off the coast. And they wanted us to go out and basically photograph it. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, he was not happy. And me, I was always just happy to fly. I, you know, it didn't, didn't bother me. And the tactical coordinator who outranked Larry, actually, was in the back. And he was basically, he directed the tactical situation mm-hmm. with the scope and all that stuff. But Larry was was a patrol plane commander. That means you're an absolute authority on the airplane. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you have a who's in the back. So we take off. We launch the co-pilots. We had two jets and two two props. As you, uh, when you drew the airplane, you saw that what I was yep. uh, talking about in the P two turning, two burning, two turning, two burning, and they would we call them the, the J thirty four Westinghouse defueling devices because <laughs> they really <laughs> ate up the gas. In other words, you didn't leave them on very long. We used them for takeoff and in situations. So Larry says, leave the jets up. The tactical coordinator calls up and says, Larry, what are you doing? We're going to burn too much fuel. We can. And Larry says, shut up. So, <laughs> so, we, so the tactical coordinator lo- locates the vessel. And Larry, he just keeps the jet up. We're, we're, we're hauling for that old World War II kind of airplane. We're hauling toward this thing. And he drops down to as low as he possibly can. And he flies over the deck of this trawler. And it almost lifted the boat out of the water. And not going, my God, what is this guy doing? He comes around. <laughs> <laughs> comes around and he's going to do another pass. By this time, the Russians on the deck are waving the hammer and sickle at us and, and shaking their fists and everything. And we just did it again and did it one more time. And Larry says, okay, Frank, we're done. <laughs> and he goes back, goes back to the base. And I thought the tactical coordinator was going to have a conniption fit and, and uh, get him court-martialed or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nothing came of it. And I just remember that incident. It was the funniest daggone thing. Larry Berryman. I hope he's still alive. He's a little bit older than me. So explain to our listeners, because some of them may not know what a Russian trawler is, and explain to them <laughs> what it is and what it's doing, why it's around. So it is rascal Russians, in order to spy, you know, up close on coasts and stuff like that, they would have a literally a fishing boat. It would look exactly like a fishing boat. It was purpose was for spying. It had all kinds of spies down in the, you know, down in the cabin and, and antennas disguised and everything. They had those type. And then, then of course, they had regular naval surface things that would had electronic yeah. spying capabilities, too. But but this was aggra- aggravating because it was on a weekend. Larry was not feeling well. He was just angry. Boy. I tell you, that plane coming over you at about 25 feet above your mast, it got it must have scared the the heck out of those guys. Well, yeah. And a P2V is a big airplane. Okay, to to, to all my listeners, Frank is flying in a P2V Neptune made by Lockheed. It's a big airplane. And those old J-34s, they're noisy. They're really noisy. I laugh about that to this day. I remember as a kid, Frank, living in Southern California, and my mom was a surfer, and we'd go to the beach, and you'd see the P2V Neptunes running up and down the coast. You know, they're just checking things out and everything, but they're coming back, going out to somewhere on patrol, or they're coming back from patrol. But as a kid in the 60s, okay, I'm like five, six, seven, eight years old. I remember seeing these things go up and down the beach, and they're not 
they're not small by any means. They're big <laughs> yeah. airplanes. Okay. So yeah. 25 feet above the mass and you have this big shadow go over the top of you. It probably scared the piss out of everybody. We, we hope it did. We weren't real happy with the Russians in those days as we are not now. And here they are back again. Worse, worse than ever. Oh, and go ahead, and again, sorry. so so my listeners understand, Frank, tell them your feelings on the Cold War back then, because in the 80s, when I was on alert and see, this is like 20 years before I was on alert. We had airplanes flying around with nuclear weapons on them. OK, and you oh, mentioned yeah. that to me in a phone call. So yeah. talk a little bit about what the Cold War meant to you as a Navy flyer hunting for these subs. Well, we all watch the news and stuff like that before we went in and everything. But after you, after you get in the service, you start. Uh, they give you a little more more intel briefings and things like that. It turns out the Russians had uh, nuclear subs off our coast who had the capability of annihilating the entire East Coast. And you know, and of course, I got wife, kids, mm-hmm. kid, parents, uh, family, all on the East Coast had been incinerated by the SOBs. So we were motivated if they ever cut us loose. We were absolutely motivated to kill them, as kill as many of them as we could. And we would be happy to do that. We were hoping we could do that. And our weapons, we carried all kinds of weapons. The nuclear depth charge was uh, was rather spectacular. But we had more, quite frankly, we had more effective weapons. And one of them was a homing tor- torpedo, which I preferred to load on when, on a mission. And the thing was, was we knew... We might be able to get half of them in the, in the beginning of World War III. Uh-huh. The other half, we hope, we hope that the, our, our attack subs and we hoped our surface ASW fleet could get the rest. The United States would take a lot of nuclear hits. And we were supposed to stay out there and hunt them until we got low on gas. And if the, if the East Coast was incinerated, we were supposed to go to Brazil, get gas, load up, and go back out and keep hunting until... Either we we killed them all, or they killed us. And I'm I'm not I'm serious. That's what that's what our motivation was. Frank, you just said something I didn't know. You guys would go to Brazil. Yeah, that would be that was in the uh, secret orders package. I talk about it now because it's 2022. Mm-hmm. But we go down there and load up and go back out and fight again. That's what we would do in the event of World War Three. So you had obviously bases that you were designed to go to, assigned to go. Well, to. we we had you know they were they were friendly. Brazil was friendly at the time. Oh yeah, they were big yeah. time in the sixties yeah. and seventies. Yeah, but but this means you had places that you could go that not yes. only had the fuel but had the weapons that you could load up. That's right, in Brazil. That was what we understood our would would happen in World War Three. Yeah, it was pretty grim. Uh, a lot of these youngsters they. They don't realize how grim it was. If if this guy Putin is threatening us with nuclear weapons, we're getting ready to go back into a grim time. You know, and it's interesting too that you look that you say that because people are talking about we're in another cold war. Some people don't believe it, Frank, but a lot of us that are in the military have been in the military. We're looking at this going, hey, this is just like being back in the cold war. Yeah, okay? we, yeah, we've we've seen this before. We've seen it before. We would, in addition to the uh, rigging the uh, or the sh- the shipping surveillance or, around mm-hmm. Cuba and everything. When we deployed, when I when I went up to Jacksonville and, and got in uh, BP seven, we would deploy to the Med 
and we would track a lot of Foxtrot uh, submarines, and they were a conventional submarine. So they had to come up, they had to snorkel, or they had to uh, surface, and so that would make them a little more vulnerable. However, on one, one mission, we got a contact. It was obviously uh, the, the, guy, the radar operators could tell a, a sub sailed mm-hmm. with the radar image, and they said, hey, we got a contact, went into attack, attack mode. It was Cold War, so we weren't going to sink them, but... But we came screaming in, and it was a Russian Echo, which is a nuke. We, ca- we caught a nuke on the surface that we could have killed in a, in a war scenario. I was flying with the skipper of the squadron that day, and he was so happy at our success. He had a, a giant ceremony at quarters and presented the entire crew with a bottle of scotch. Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, we each got a bottle of scotch. He got a case of scotch. A couple of the young fellows on the crew said, well, I don't drink. And I said, don't worry. I'll take care of that for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I'm a member of the LDS church, so I don't drink. But I was more than happy to buy liquid refreshment, as we called it. <laughs> for my for my air crew and for and for my squadron i had my caffeine free diet coke that i used you know for all my things talk about tradition back then okay all of the tradition that we had back then during the 60s and 70s the camaraderie i mean we still have that same camaraderie but there was a lot of navy tradition back then too wasn't there yeah it was a story about camaraderie but uh, a little it may be a little risky to talk about it. If you want me to, I will. It doesn't involve any any bad words or sex. It has to do with fighting. That'll be perfect. (laughs) We're in the old club. I married at the time. My wife was, she was a model when I married her. She was a real, a real looker. And so we're at the the old club all having a good time. We'd always, the squadron, all the pilots and NFOs, everything, we'd go to the old club on certain nights and we were all having a good Mm -hmm. time. You know, and there was music and there was dancing. Friday yeah, nights yeah. at the old so club. Guy, you know, a guy, obviously, wife sort of stood out, you know, so he came by and asked her to dance. And she just, she pipes. He said, oh, no, thank you. He called her a bad word, which I can't mention on the radio. <laughs> and here I am. I'm five foot eight, weigh 135 pounds. I leapt up on the table and dove at him and was caught by you know, a bunch of people around. They caught me and then they stopped the fight. Well, here's where the camaraderie came in. A couple of my squadron mates says, hey, don't worry about it, Frank. We'll take care of this. So it turns out later that these squadron guys hid in the bushes. And when this guy came walking out, they jumped out and beat the hell out of him and told him, you don't mess with, you can't be rude to our women. That was a good camaraderie thing. It was funny. They said, we'll take care of it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that, that's an important lesson, I think, for everybody is when you're in a squadron, unless your leadership is toxic, I will make that caveat. If you're <laughs> in a squadron with great leadership and great yeah. people, life is sweet and you take care of each other. You watch each other's back, don't you? Those were the good squadron days. Yeah, I, I noticed that. I enjoyed that. But after that, I went on to flying, uh, I went to in the reserves and I flew S-2s, which is an ASW mission, but we didn't do any uh, deployments overseas or anything. 
And then finally, I went up to VP-68. That was a P-3 squadron. So I got qualified in the P-3. But we deployed over to the Med and were constantly chasing and tracking Russian sub. The saying is, if we can track them, we can attack them. So we always kept that in mind. We had this folder in our in the plane in, the, in a certain compartment, which you're familiar with with SAC. They had all that stuff. You get a message, a flash message that says, okay, it's on. We take the folder out and say, you're cleared. To, a, yeah. to attack any contacts, you know, stuff like that. That and, was about the uh, end of my uh, patrol days, uh, mm-hmm. we'll call it not combat, but uh, operational stuff. And then yeah. the rest of my career was sort of, it was interesting, but uh, I don't know if we have time to go through all of that. There was a, there was a lot involved after that. I retired in 92. That was, that's sort of it. So uh, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about, okay? First yeah. of all, when you deployed to the med, where were you flying out of? We have deployed out of Rhoda was one place and another was Sigonella, S- Sicily. I have Back. been to both of those places. Here, They're phenomenal on, locations. <laughs> so you're flying out of Rhoda. And yeah. so you're Rhoda, Spain and Sigonella on the island of Sicily. So right. those are really incredible locations during that time period, because correct me if I'm wrong, you're not only chasing subs, but there's surface action groups and Russian ships that you're also tracking around through the med all during that time period too. There was a time when we would run in on the Russian ships real close. We'd end up with a fire control radar on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, this got to be so apparently worrisome to the Russians that they, they arranged with our, I guess, state department or our, our government a, a treaty where we would have a standoff dif- distance. So we couldn't come any closer than 500 feet to a Russian warship. And so that was disappointing because we'd like to blow the garbage <laughs> off those decks too. Disappointing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but see, that's another thing. A really cool piece of information is you guys were getting lit up a lot, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. In a, in a real war scenario, we uh, it have been very dangerous for us. Even during this very tense period, you're flying around these ships and well, like, yeah, one mis- and it's like a language, isn't it? Because they're yeah. talking to you by lighting you up. You're talking yeah. to them by flying low over their deck. And yeah. they know that you've got people in the windows taking pictures and, and doing <laughs> all kinds of stuff. If I remember right, the P3 had a big searchlight on one wing. Like oh, you yeah. You guys could even do this at night. Okay. 70 million, 70 million candle power. If you're standing in front of that and it comes on and you're looking at it, you won't be seeing anything ever again. 70 million candle power? <laughs> Good. It was grief. a bright rascal. We lit up a sub one night, happened to be a it happened to be a French sub, so we didn't know what it was. Oh. <laughs> and we we lit them up and they were racing hell on the radio. Turn that light off. <laughs> you know, and they were they were running on the surface. And finally, we we worked it out on the radio that we, you guys are a French sub. You're not the not a Russian, but yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Just so our listeners understand, just walk us through your process for finding, fixing, and tracking a sub. I'm assuming that when you go out to an area, you have a general idea. It's out here somewhere in this area. But you've got okay. to really refine sure. that target solution. Yeah. So, of, of, of course, you know, uh, before we launch, we have we have Intel, which is usually some of it comes from these underwater uh, listening device systems that we mm-hmm. have. 
we called them SOSIS at the time, but the acronym was probably gone. So we would get intel that there's a Russian Charlie out there uh, in the general area. So we would go out there and we would start dropping sauna buoys uh, in a in a you know in a rather large pattern and just listen. And then if you got if our operator got a, a hit on one of the sauna buoys or basically a, a sound uh, pattern. Uh, then we would we would sort of try to localize the search mm-hmm. and on that particular sauna buoy and drop another pattern. And then finally, when we got like a course and speed awning, then we could drop down and use the mad, magnetic anomaly detection gear. We call it MAD gear. But we have to fly very low over the water with that. We would fly these MAD tracks. And if you got a madman, it could be attack criteria. Uh-huh. So uh, we you know, we frequently did did it did it that way. We dropped a lot of sun boys in the Atlantic. I I think the bottom is littered with them. <laughs> they, at at the time, they wanted to let us know how much they cost. It's just like throwing a TV set out your window every every time you drop one of those. Oh, that's There's what a they told story, you. It's a funny story about that sun boy. We were dropping sun boys on a sub off the coast of Portugal, <laughs> and the damn thing sur- surfaced. I think it was old rickety whiskey or foxtrot sub. Yeah. And they surfaced, and they grabbed hold of the sauna buoy. They drug it down into the sub, but the cable with the microphone on it is, God knows, I don't know, a couple of hundred feet long or something. It hangs uh-huh. out in the water, you know? And we could hear them hauling that cable in for about 15 minutes, and they're speaking <laughs> Russian. And then finally they, finally, they buttoned up, and they went sinker, and they were gone. We went, whoa, scratch it. Well, what the heck was that? <laughs> So they, you could hear must, them through the microphone on the Sunaboy? Oh, yeah. We could hear them talking and everything. They took it down inside the sub, and we were laughing. You know, it, the Sunaboy is a very simple thing. It's it's not anything where if the Russians take it apart and re-engineer it, they haven't got anything. Just very, yeah. a very simple thing. But, but they that, had the mic inside the sub, and you could still <laughs> hear them did. talking. They did. You know, the Sunaboy is like a little like tube, and it yeah. punch it out the b- bottom of the plate, and it's like a little retarded parachute on it. Drops in the water, and then it, then it uh, the salt water and everything causes it to go turn active. on the electronics in it. Yeah, some buoys are the old days were active, and some were passive. Most of the ones we used were passive. We had uh, active sauna buoys for more close in localized searches. So when we you were, say active, Frank, you're saying it's sending out a ping. Just, like in the movie yeah. Hunt for Red October, one ping yes. only, Vizili, one ping only. And it's going bing, bing, yeah, bing. And right. then it yeah. is echolocating based on that ping, right? Whereas the that's passive right. one is just there and it's yeah. just doing nothing but listening. Yeah, the guy, the operators are so skillful. They can hear a particular propeller sound from a sub and they can almost identify the kind of sub it is from just the sound of the propeller. And so, and the other machine, there's machinery on there that's making noise and stuff like that. Now, I don't know uh, uh, what they're doing these days, but uh, it's probably I'm talking about technology from the 60s. This must be far advanced now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can only imagine what's in these Seawolf class subs now. huh? Yeah. Who knows what these Seawolf class submarines are picking up and how far away they're picking it up. And not only that, how far away they can probably shoot something. Because, yeah. I mean, I they just, carry Tomahawk land attack missiles, cruise missiles inside of yeah. them now, too. And those can be used on a number of targets. So, hey, I want you to explain for our listeners what you mean by mad gear. I know what it is. Explain okay. to our listeners what the mad gear is and what it's looking for. 
the uh, the Earth's line of magnetic lines, the natural natural magnetic field of the Earth, mm-hmm. is a certain pattern to it. You take a, a large metal object, even under the water, and you fly over it. As you approach, it's it's the magnetic anomaly detection gear is reading like the regular magnetic field of the Earth. But when it goes over this large metal object, it causes an anomaly. So magnetic okay. anomaly detection. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're right over the sub, in this case, and the operator calls out, madman, madman, and you push out a smoke, and it marks where the sub is at that time. If you, I can't remember correctly, I think we had to come around and get like three, three confirmed passes in order to, to drop a weapon. I think mm-hmm. that's what we never dropped a weapon on. We only dropped uh, what they call PDCs on them. Uh, yeah. They were about they were like little hand grenades. Uh, they uh, you throw them out, and they they were a, a sound device. You uh, created an underwater sound device, and sometimes we would drop those, and that was uh, you know they could hear those pop, and basically we're telling them we got you. <laughs> because <laughs> their sonar operator, you. well, and their sonar operator in the submarines are also doing their thing. Okay. And and I'm sure they hear the Sono boys plopping in the water. Cause it has a, I'm sort of sure. Oh yeah. Most sound signature. Oh, yeah. And oh, they're trying to was, maneuver away yeah. from them and doing all kinds of stuff. It was quite a game. Well, it's a three dimensional <laughs> chess game, isn't it, Frank? It is. Cause you're above surface. Then you've got on the surface, then you've got below the surface. So you really are playing like a three dimensional chess game with all of this. Yeah. Tell me what it was like flying the p2v it's a 1950s 1960s airplane obviously it's land-based and stuff talk to us a little bit about the performance of it how fast it goes how long could you stay up on a on a load of gas those kinds of things i think we stayed up what time uh, 14 hours but generally uh 10-hour missions were were the norm the plane cruised at about 180 knots and if we lift the jets, we could probably get it up to about 280 knots, something like that. I, I've forgotten now, but it would it was it would go pretty fast for an old, uh, almost a World War II kind of design plane. But it, mm-hmm. it was a kind of plane that the pilot had to fly. Didn't have a lot of uh, this fancy autopilot stuff that, mm-hmm. uh, that the button pusher guys in the airlines use these days. Uh-huh. You had to fly it. It was uh, heavy on the controls. It was long, as you you know your artwork shows. Yeah. When you were landing, you, you had a, a, an additional feature on the elevators that we called a varicam because the to pull the nose up, you literally, in addition to inputs on the yoke, you had to be actuating this switch, which would be very analogous to a trim switch, but, okay. we, but it was varicam. That was one feature where you had to watch out, be trained yeah. how to use it. I was on one training flight in the back. A lot of times they put a couple of pilots in the back and, the, and then the training pilots up front. And he goofed up, didn't have the bear cam set right when we did had the power for takeoff. The nose pitched up so high that the instructor was screaming. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. I remember that guy, Frank Delator. I wonder if he's still alive. That guy was funny. He was one of the few people, you know, in the Navy, you walk in the bar with your cap on, you know what we have to do. We have to buy a bar. Buy a round for the bar. Okay. There must be hundreds of people in the bar. And we're all sitting around a table, and here goes Frank. Frank's a big old tall guy from New York. He is a New York Italian. Thank Delator. So he comes walking in the door, 
and he's got his hat on. It's like slow motion. We're pulling, we're going, Frank, you're a hat. And he, he's lollygagging, coming, walking through the door. The bell rings, and uh, we were all ensigns at the time. He, he barely had enough money to pay the bar bill. And just, he was wrecked. That was the funniest thing. But he learned. Frank. <laughs> he learned not to do that again. No, Frank, Frank Delator. Yeah. He learned not to do that again. <laughs> yeah, to, to this day, even go to the grocery store, wear my baseball cap, and I go, uh, and I always take it off. And I, when you I, go I, indoors? You're supposed to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't have to. Now I'm retired. I can do what I want. It's ingrained in you. Yeah, but see, those are some of the traditions people don't understand now. You know what's crazy? Oh, wait, yeah. We, people don't yeah, even we go had a lot, a lot. People don't even yeah. go to the O Club now because I think it's all ranks club now. I don't think there's officers. Maybe there is still in the Navy. I don't know. Frank, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, you're I, there I, near Oceana. You would know. I hadn't had any uh, uh, need to go out to the O Clubs to, to chase girls anymore. Funny <laughs> 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 thing out in Oceana, I went back 20 years ago when I was going out there. When you go into base, you got to show the ID card to the guard. To yeah. the guard at the gates, and and, uh, and the USC salutes you, and you go into the O Club. A carload of girls comes up to the guard post, and he waves them through. No ID, no nothing. All they have to say is, "We're going to the O Club." <laughs> <laughs> those were the days. Those those yeah. were the days. <laughs> they uh, those days are gone. I know. I actually flew into Oceana once during the '80s on a Friday, and went to the O Club with uh, my buddy. Okay. And and we hear all this screaming and hollering coming out of the bar. <laughs> Walked in and got quite an eyeful, you know. Oh, right. oh, and, yeah. uh, they called it Animal Night, I think, or something like that. And they did it in conjunction with the other O Club at Miramar. It was kind yeah. of fascinating. Well, you you Air Force guys did us a, a service. You guys would come over in your flight gear, your yeah. flight suits, and yeah. the club, you know. And it, boy, we we would were not allowed to come into the club in our flight suits. And then the Air Force guys start coming in. And, uh, and they went, you know, they were asked probably initially, like, what are you doing? They go, well, this is our work, this is a working uniform. So yeah. we raised, we raised cane. After a while, we could go in the O Club in our flight suit, coming from the flight line, you know, if you want to go directly to the O Club. Like now, that. isn't that something you just brought that up? And I didn't realize that when I walked into that bar, Phil Barmore and I were flying in a T-37. It's called Advanced Co-Pilot Acceleration, where they would, we would get flying time in this little airplane, this little trainer. Yeah. And yep. we flew down there and we were in our flight suits, but most everybody in the bar was in their whites, like a top gun. And, you know, I didn't realize that until you just said something. Isn't that amazing? That's like 30 years ago. And yeah. I know people yeah. were kind of looking at us like, you know, why are you guys here? But they'd see yeah. the Air Force patches and everything. I was like, oh, OK, you guys are Air Force. Now we understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys helped us out. Now, now our, our guys are going in flight suits. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea that happened. No idea. When you left the operational world, you went out to China Lake and were doing testing on weapons and things like that. Is that correct? We that the, the whole uh, purpose of China Lake was weapons testing. I was the airfield operations officer out there. Also, I flew as a project pilot. So uh, there were and there were several airplanes. It was a great time for me as a pilot. I got to fly about five different airplanes. I was having a great time. But they were testing some bizarre weaponry out there. You know this thing the Jews and the Rus Russians are dropping what they call a vacuum bomb? Yes. 
That, yeah. Well, you know what that is. That's, I know what that that's is. A, that's what, explain you know, that to yeah, our we, listeners because that's a really interesting bomb. Well, we used to call them FAEs, FAEs, a fuel air explosion. What what happens is they drop the bomb. It explodes a, enough that a, a giant dome gasoline mist rises, you know, like in a big dome. Mm-hmm. And then these little igniters come shooting out. And when they light off, the whole dome of gasoline, which is now mixed with air, explodes. And I swear, I've seen these things, and they look like an atomic blast. I mean, even a mushroom cloud. So what what they're for is they're, they're pretty cruel weapons, but they're for is overpressuring. So if you've got a whole bunch of Iranian you know, civilians in an apartment building hiding for their life, they drop one of these things nearby, the overpressure from it will kill them. It was designed initially to go in and kill the enemy that were in caves, generally the caves up in North, in North Korea. That's what it was designed for. So if those Russians are doing that against civilians, that's not nice. Frank, here's something about that. During the war in Afghanistan, we were having to deal with the caves again, and we did the exact same thing. They filled a laser-guided bomb, the 2,000-pound tra- penetrators we call GBU-24s. Yeah. And they would skip the bomb into the back of the cave and it would uh-huh. release that aerosol through the cave mm-hmm. yeah. and then it, it would ignite it, a delayed fuse on it. I say delay, you know, I'm talking like nanoseconds and it would literally just clear out the cave. And when yeah. I got to our test uh, operational test and evaluation center down at Kirtland Air Force Base, the Air Force uh, Operational Test and Evaluation Center, I went and looked up that particular program because I found the name for it. It was called Divine Kingfisher. Hmm. All of our weapons programs have the word divine in them. I was able to go on our web folders and I found that and went through and read all of the stuff on how they figured out how to drop these laser guided bombs into caves and they would skip them into the cave so that the bomb would come apart. And then, like you said, that aerosol would go in there. Yeah. And the program was called Divine Kingfisher. I thought that was really fascinating that that you would mention that kind of fuel air explosive in it in caves mm-hmm. in North Korea, because now yeah. we had to use that same technology. You know, isn't that a great lesson learned? You know, yeah. hey, <laughs> these caves aren't any different than the caves in Afghanistan. OK, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we can use that same technology over there. I guess I guess they're a controversial weapon. What are you supposed to do? I mean, what what are the rules of war? You know, there is no rules of war. This ridiculous. Oh, I, and that's Except a great point. That, that from the enemy's perspective, we we adhere to the rules of war. We do, but the enemy, no, they don't. No, and and we've learned that, haven't we, over and over again? Yes. You said that you flew several types of airplanes while you were at China Lake. The P3s are just coming online, I, I think, when you get there, or they've been in the fleet for a while. What other airplanes are you flying while you're there? Well, there, there were no P3s out there. We had one of the projects I worked on was the uh, National Parachute Test Range. And they used, get this, uh, an old, you would call it the C-47. We called it the C-117. And, mm-hmm. and, and the airlines called them DC-3s. But they are excellent parachuting uh, bird. So the test parachutists, which were trying to develop at the time, they were developing these steerable chutes for military. Uh-huh. So they were they we would uh, you know we climbed altitude, jump master put out the test parachutists and they, they test performance to these chutes. They all had on the chest packs in case the test parachute didn't would didn't work out. 
So that was one of the one of the projects that I worked on. And then a lot of the other planes were mainly logistics planes. I, there was a C-131, which was a Convair. That's an old twin engine reset, yeah, like, yeah. like an, it's almost like an airliner. And we'd use that for logistics. And then uh, I'm trying to think, and one little one little twin engine plane there that was uh, when Eisenhower was president, he used it as one of his, his aircraft to get around in. Unlike Air Force One, it was a, it was a smaller, you know, helicopters weren't all that trusted. So he used it was an Aero Commander. So that was one. Oh, really? And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I flew that one. That was, uh, and I'm trying to think uh, whatever else. I don't know. Gosh. <laughs> we, but you really didn't her. care about the airplane. You just wanted to go fly. Yeah, uh, you're right. That, that's that's what I signed up for to be a pilot. And we had another plane, which was. The next version of the caribou we called the buffalo, and it was instead of recepts on it. The army, you know, the army had a caribou. We uh, we bought a version out there that had t- twin turboprops on it, uh-huh. and it was it was a heck of a performing airplane as far as short takeoff and land. I literally could land that plane and stop, and I'm not kidding you in the in the length of a football field. Wow, we that's didn't have amazing. Any- yeah, we didn't need, need to have any of that tactical, you know, use the tactical stuff because we were using it to put out test parachutists and, uh, you know, and also logistics, cargo stuff. You know, I, I just wanted to see what it would do one day. I landed down to the end of the runway and literally had to taxi up to the first, you know, where you enter the runway, you know, the taxiway. Yeah. You get ready to take off. I had to taxi up to that. It was such a short. <laughs> <laughs> this thing was amazing. And it was uh, the Havlin made it, but oh yeah, yeah that was a... yeah that was one of them. I'm trying to think of a, another. I think we had a uh, oh they used to have a T28 out there, and the, the previous operations officer crashed it, and I was mad at him because that was that have been a sweet airplane to fly. It was like a World War II fighter, the T28. Oh, and it's got yeah. that big, huge receptacle engine in the front yeah. of it too. Yeah, this knucklehead thought it would be uh, cool to do a uh, fly inverted over the Salton Sea, and he didn't quite pull it off. He's oh, lucky no. he didn't kill himself. I think he came close to killing himself. Oh, jeez! That hey, that rascal! Your son Matt told me yeah. that every <laughs> once in a while he got to go fly with you in some of these things. Is that true? It's amazing, and and everything was legal. I could not take him legally. Oh yeah, I could on certain logistics flights when we were overseas. I could take him, and I did. Where he got some of the most interesting flying experiences was later on. One of my tour of duties was in Wichita at the Raytheon plant. I was uh-huh. doing acceptance testing on on King Airs and things, uh-huh. and uh, the production test pilots liked Matt. They would take him up on test flights. And of course, he would he would manipulate the controls and everything. He was having the time of his life as a kid. And how old is Matt now when he's doing this? He was just like 13 years old or something like that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Can you imagine I mean, as a teenager, 13 years old, and you're out test flying airplanes with yeah, your dad's I mean, bros. These guys were testing, testing the airplanes, and they took Matt up with them, having a, a great time. But these guys, these were good pilots. And I, I trusted them. They oh, were, they I'm were sure they were. Yeah, they, they were. They were some great guys out there in Wichita when I was there. You probably heard of McConnell. That, that was. Uh, oh yeah. Oh stuff. yeah. But we were at Beach, the Beechcraft facility, which is the Raytheon Corporation. Yeah. Testing testing C-12s for the Navy mm-hmm. and the, and the Air Force and the yeah. Army, whoever else, Coast Guard. And the Air Force were funny because uh, they came out there one day and they said. 
you're testing our planes, your Navy. I went, that's right. They said, uh, well, we don't like this. And I said, well, fine, fine. If you don't want me to test the airplanes, just go back to Mac and tell them that you don't want to do that. <laughs> and they went, I, I said, because we have, uh, this is a joint operation and I'm, and I'm very qualified in airplanes and uh, I know what I'm doing. So, but go ahead and ask Matt, Mac, if, if you want to have me, relieve me from testing the planes. And they went, uh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Military airlift <laughs> command probably went, okay. <laughs> but what does it matter? I mean, really, Truly, what does it matter if you're Navy or Air Force? Because the test card is going to tell you what you got to do anyway, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I and, was and you're well, not going to change well. the test card yeah. for whoever, you know, it doesn't, the test card doesn't care if you're Air Force, Navy, or Marine Corps, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. And I was very well trained uh, to do, obviously, to be a testing airplane, you have to be very well trained. Uh, you know, I was nice to, I wasn't nasty to him or anything like that, but I said, yeah, just check with Mac. Ask him if you'd like to have me replaced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, and, and for all the listeners out there, Mac is Military Airlift Command, which was what it was called back then. Now it's Air Mobility Command. It's the same. That's, We're yes, talking to the same group. We're talking to the same people. Okay, it doesn't Mac matter. Was powerful. <laughs> yeah. Mac was very big and powerful. You've got a point there. Yes, it and, was. Because, you know, it's not just the Breechcraft King Airs we're flying. We're flying on C-141s. We're flying C-5s. Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, yeah. We're all kinds of huge, huge airplanes. And yeah. McConnell is a big base anyway. And if I'm not mistaken, the, there's a Boeing plant there, too, that they were building things there all the way back to World there War II. There was, yeah. I don't know, but they were building uh, B-29s or uh, mm-hmm. or B-24s. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. But they were building bombers. Out there. I think it was B-29s. Or, yeah, it was I mean, B-29s. Uh, B-17s, I'm sure. Imagine being there during that time period where you've got all these airplanes flying around. All yeah. these different airplanes that you're flying, you know, as well as I don't know what McConnell was back back at that time period, but you know, it may have been an old sack base or something like that. Who knows? You know, because tankers yeah, they, have been there for a long time. McConnell gave uh, is a joint operation. McConnell supported me. In other words, I could go over and get my flight physicals over there, yeah, and yeah. dentists, and and I could get all the flight gear I wanted and everything. The Air Force seemed to be have a lot of money for flight gear, and they had, I'd go in. I, you know, it's cold out here in the wintertime. Yeah, you got any Arctic gear for me? Oh yeah, yes sir, right here, oh, full Arctic gear and everything. All the mucklucks and the big overcoat everything, and everything. Yeah, huh? yeah, it'd be like freezing cold in Kansas out there in the, in the snow. Oh Sun, yeah, blowing sideways. Yeah, minus thirty degrees. Yeah, after pre-flight a plane out there, I was testing T-34s also with the the T-34C, which was a turboprop T-34. Yeah, the mentor, was, which are you guys use as a primary trainer. Yeah, they had the the original ones was the recept thing, and but the turboprop one was a not, very nice performing little plane before it they went really, to the uh, the new T-sixes. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah. Okay. Amazing stuff. Well, we've been talking almost an hour now. I'm trying to think of a few more things to ask you about the Cold War period. You know, and and you mentioned some things too. Well, I've got got another antidote, I'll tell you. Sure. Go right ahead. Okay. Remember we told you about the spy trawlers? Yes. Okay. Well, well, they were also in the med. So when I when when we were deployed to the uh, intel officer said 
brought us the crews in and go, we've been looking for this trawler, the Zorkoff or whatever, you know, and uh, we can't find it. We don't know where it is. And we've run a couple of patrol missions and we'd like to locate it and all that. And so when you go out, keep a lookout for it. And we're going sure, sure. Well, every day me and, and Rick Regler would drive to our homes off base and our wives were over there. And we wore aviation green, a uniform that yeah. looked it looked impressive to the Italians, apparently, because Rick, Rick would say, Rick said, let's do the shortcut through through the harbor. You know, usually the harbor was like restricted. You couldn't go in there. So we'd pull up to the guard post and, and just wave at him and go right on through. We'd be in our aviation greens. We went by this one ship and I looked at it and we said, well, that's Russian. And he says, you know what that is? That's a trawler they've been looking for. It's right here in the port. So we put a picture. <laughs> we took a bunch of pictures and went back to the to the intel officer and said, "Hey, we got pictures of the trawler." He goes, "How'd you get these? It looks like he's in port." I said, "Yeah, it's right over here in the, in the port in Catania right now." He goes, "I'll be." T- <laughs> that's hilarious. You're looking for a boat out at sea and it's tied up in your own port. Yeah, it's right. Your own right harbor. <laughs> yeah, we were laughing at that. Yeah, you know, Rick Riggler, that guy was a character. He uh, went to work for the FBI. I don't know. I, I, hopefully, he's still around too. He, he was a good guy. Yeah, that goes. That comes back to that whole lesson learned about work smarter, not harder. You got the boat <laughs> tied up there, right in port. <laughs> So did the Russian guy say anything to you while you're, you know, well, walking no, around we, we, the dog we driving, driving by, you know, and I, and I said, Rick, you got a camera in the car. And he went, yeah, yeah. Tell you here. And so we stopped and we took pictures of them and we didn't get the objection because they're basically, it was weird. They're in a NATO country's port. We went, well, how is this? How can this be? But anyway, they were, oh, I didn't even <laughs> think of that. Yeah. They're yeah. in an Italian so, port, a Russian <laughs> spy trawler. Yeah. Yeah, it's parking it's, in an Italian port. Yeah, that's right. It's just food, they gas, probably, they who probably, knows what. Yeah, they probably didn't tell the Italians that they were a spy trawler. They probably said they were actually a fishing trawler. We recognize the intel, the pictures and stuff that we get. We could identify it. <laughs> oh, man. Isn't that funny? You're looking all over for this thing, and there it is right there. And I, I'm sure the intel, like you said, the intel guys are like, where did you get these? Where did you get these? Hey, uh, you guys need to spend more time in port, okay? (laughs) That was funny. You you spent a lot of time, Frank, it sounds like, learning about the different threats. You spent a lot of book time, didn't you, learning about the different subs. More importantly, you probably spent a lot of time learning about what they sounded like, didn't you? Yes, uh, we we were always more or less having classroom time on, you know, so... Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, for identifying but really the pilot's job was if, if it was on the surface we wanted on the eyeball we wanted to be able to identify it like right away what kind of sub it was and everything because usually with, when they're detected they go sinker if you see one basically it's the shape of the sail that gives it away as far as the uh the sound signatures and things like that we really didn't get involved in detail in that we had experts, you know, we'd go back and go, he'd call up the cockpit and say, hey, we're tracking a, a so-and-so here. You know, if we had luxury, we'd go back and take a look at the uh, the strip that's coming out. And you yeah. can see a little bit of a, you know, a different pattern and stuff. But that's about as, as, as close as I got to that particular sensor. So we had sensor operators and did it back there. Talk about the crew that you had on the, on the airplane, because obviously you have to aviate, navigate and communicate. You know, the three words every pilot knows. 
explain to our listeners on the P2V and even in the P3s, the air crew that you have on board and what their specialties are besides just the pilots. You have the patrol plane commander and you have a co-pilot and there's a third pilot. And that's basically for relief. So if you go out on a long patrol, you can swap pilots out. The pilot being relieved can go back and relax, get a cup of coffee or even Mm -hmm. stretch out or something. So those are the pilot positions. Then you had, we had a radar operator and you have a a radio operator and you have, uh, we had a navigator who was a naval flight officer. We had a tactical coordinator who was also a naval flight officer. Sometimes the tactical coordinator could be the mission commander, but the pilot, the patrol plane pilot was absolute authority over mm-hmm. the safety. So if the mission commander said, I need you to go 600 miles north because they, they've got a contact up there, well, the, the pilot would say, can't do it. We don't have enough gas. That, that would be a simple example. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then we have a sensor operator who was the one that was listening to the uh, sonic, you know, the, the sonic the voice. In the rear, you had ordnance, and that that would be the guy throwing out the sauna boys. Or in the case where, if you know, in a wartime scenario, he'd be basically helping to manage the weapons as best as you can. It wouldn't ha- necessarily have to go down into Bombay, but and I believe there's yeah, we had another. I think there were another crewman back aft there that was like more or less the assistance assisting the ordnance guy. Usually ran with about eleven man crew. Did that add up to eleven? For some of these, like the tactical coordinator and the sensor operators, did you have more than one position that they could sit at, or was it just one guy in a scope, or were there two scopes? The radar operator had a scope. The tactical okay. coordinator had a repeater scope that showed uh-huh. the same thing. Uh, uh, those were the two scopes. And I, I can't remember, but I thought we had some sort of display in the cockpit, the P3, that could, could also display something. We so, obviously had. I remember yeah. seeing pictures of like a big white round display that was like right above the console that was between your knees. I'm assuming that was that display that, that would show where the buoy patterns are, or where the contacts are, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's kind of like yeah. your repeater scope up front, wasn't it? Yeah. And ours in the P2 is a, a little more rudimentary. I, we did have a radar, a radar screen up in the mm-hmm. cockpit, but I don't, re- I don't remember if we actually uh, could see what the tactical coordinator was plotting on his scope in the back. I'm not yeah. sure. So an 11 man crew in the P2V and, probably about the same in the p3s too yeah and and they've all got the the same functions correct yeah the same Uh, functionality a lot of times uh a pilot could uh go back and relieve the navigator you know the off-duty pilot but being pilots uh we hated to do the navigator job we resist that because when we when i came in when you went to the squadron as a third pilot you were the crew navigator they, we oh, didn't have a okay. navigator. Now I actually had to go to na- navigator school. So I have a 400 hours as a na- tactical navigator, you know, and then all you can think of is the pilot is like, I got to get one of the co-pilots. Somebody needs to leave the squadron so I can move up to at least co-pilot position. That's all we were striving for. Then you, when you're in the co-pilot position, now you're in a, you're in a good spot. I didn't realize that, that you went, and that the, the sub warfare guys were pilots and trained navigators. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the early days, that's right. I, Here's I a question for you. I did navigated you, across the Dagon Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> oh, did you really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> your 400 hours of navigating around in your logbook, you had some pretty long flights in going across the Pacific or going across the Atlantic and 
and just oh, yeah. out out and about running around hunting for subs. Now, another little antidote on the, on navigating is there was a crew that had to go up to Jacksonville and I, I wanted to go up to Jacksonville with them because I had some time off. So I took the third pilot position on plane. And uh-huh. so uh, I just wanted to ride, but I was happy to navigate. So I'm, and it's at night and we're in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. We're heading toward the United States. Oh, no. And we had Loran A in those days and that, uh-huh. and that failed. You know, it was too cloudy down below beneath us to use a drift meter. I couldn't, I couldn't get it, get a star shot. I had nothing, no, nothing uh, but DR. So, <laughs> so we're going along and uh, told that radar operator, I said, pilot says, so what's our heading have? I said, uh, West. <laughs> we're, we're not going to miss the United States if we just head West, we, you know. So sure enough, <laughs> radar operator paint, starts painting the coast. I looked at it and I went, holy mackerel, that's Florida. We're supposed to be going to Norfolk. So I told the pilot, I said, uh, turn 20 degrees north. <laughs> and finally, we navigated on radar in order to get yeah. into the offer. You know, I remember that was- doing that in the KC-135. I remember doing that kind of, you know, radar mapping uh, in KC-135 and it wasn't real good, mind you, but you could certainly pick out islands and the coast. And as you got closer, you could pick out all kinds of ground targets. You know, you mentioned something, Loran A and drift and and no star shots and stuff like that. Think about it, Frank, because pilots nowadays, particularly young pilots, have no idea what that is. (laughs) <laughs> celestial navigation uh, that's like what magellan did that's how you guys got around yes that's yeah. how we got yeah. around we actually did it we actually got around by using the same kind of yeah. methods that uh, magellan but, used you know yeah. and but I, I, i've read some stories about the uh, polynesians the way they navigated in the pacific and they mm-hmm. said they could tell by like cloud patterns sometimes where uh-huh. an island might be. So we used to fly patrols all over very low altitude around north of Cuba. I'd lost my, I was navigating and I, I lost the information I needed. So I went up to the cockpit and I'm looking around at the horizon and I was looking, we were supposed to be coming upon an island that I could use as a fix. So I'm looking and looking and I looked at these cumulus buildups way up, must've been a hundred miles away. And I said, steer for those. And sure enough, we got in there. There was the island. And that's the way the Polynesians, you know, would do it. So I use Polynesian That's amazing, Frank. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're correct because anybody that's been to Hawaii has seen, like, in the afternoon where the clouds, like, roll over the top of the mountains, right? Yeah, yeah. And every afternoon at 4 o'clock, it seems like islands, particularly in the Pacific, where I was in Okinawa and Guam and things like that, you get those four o'clock rainstorms in the afternoon. And it was always building up between four and four thirty, and then it would pour for about a half hour and then it'd yeah. go away. <laughs> yeah. Man, I didn't think of that. That is amazing yeah. stuff. Yeah. See, my, my philosophy was use any information you possibly can use. If, if I could see birds, if, if birds, birds will let you know too, but we're doing too fast and we didn't want to get too close to birds anyway. Oh, ain't that the <laughs> truth, man. You know, how many bird strikes have you and I had in our careers? Holy smokes. Uh, 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 several, several. 
I had a fully mature red tail hawk go down the right intake of my T38 on a touch and go, and it trashed the engine, Frank. Hell yeah. Oh, trashed yeah. the engine. Yeah. And the smell inside the cockpit was terrible. <laughs> oh, terrible because the pressurization system ran off the right engine. Oh, ran off the right oh. engine. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. You know, I mean, think about the tools that pilots have now where you've got GPS that I took off from Rota, Spain. Frank, and flew to Fairchild Air Force Base. And when we landed, we had to do a nav check, you know, to, on the boxes to yeah. see how tight they yeah. were. Mm -hmm. We were only off by 307 feet after you, flying all across. We, we went, we took off out of Rota, went north across Reykjavik, across Greenland, mm -hmm. down across yeah. Hudson Bay, through mm -hmm. Alberta, and then into Fairchild. Okay. That was our route of flight. And yeah. we were off only 307 feet when we landed because we're using the, uh, the inertial nav system. We Is were the using inertial? the ring laser gyro INS tied yeah. to GPS. Yes. Okay. It's called Iggy. And it was, yeah. it took the place of the navigator in the KC-135. Yeah. And the last days of flying the P3s, we had a big box that could fit in there. And there was an inertial nav system. And it was the, it would be the forerunner of what you uh, were just talking about. It wasn't that sophisticated, but it was very accurate. Like you say, we'd go long distances and then check it on the deck. We would be within those, those tolerance, like yeah. you were mentioning. That was yeah. good stuff. Uh, that's good stuff for a, a warfighting type of uh aircraft because uh you're not dependent upon the satellites or any electronic nav aids the inertial you lose your use the inertial uh mm -hmm. it's all self-contained and now you know you have the big displays in the cockpits that have the virtual reality that show you yeah. all the terrain outside and you yeah. have terrain avoidance and i worry sometimes that we have lost piloting skill because we rely too much on the boxes I am sensing that also, and they're going to be sorry in the future. There are several aircraft crashes here recently where it seems to me that if they, they had known how to just fly the airplanes, mm -hmm. stick and rudder, they would have been okay. To have an autopilot in the plane, if it doesn't have a red button where I can turn it off, I don't want to be in the plane. It's like yeah. these new self-driving cars, and they want you to sit there with no steering wheel, no nothing. Well, I'm not getting to those. If I, if I get one of those self-driving uh, cars in the future, it better have a red button on the steering wheel so I can, can turn it off. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Autopilot off. <laughs> off. Off. Turn that thing off. <laughs> exactly. Autopilot off. Yes. People don't understand, oh. Frank, how intense yeah. this was where we're seriously going eye to eye sometimes, eyeball to eyeball, or as we used to say, retina to retina. With the Russians or their and, satellites uh, or their satellites. The stuff they're doing in Ukraine is, is like like the Nazis did in World War II. These are bad people. Very bad. Those Ukrainians need our help. You know, I was looking at those column of trucks that the Russians are they're coming down to, I don't know, how many miles long. Yeah. It's a new column. I just wish we had a squadron of A-10s and would hose down that entire column. That would be fantastic. <laughs> probably if you hose down the, the front end of it, maybe about 20 up trucks, the, the Russians probably turn tail and run. You know how many of my A-10 Bubba's have seen that picture and they're like salivating and licking their lips? I know. Target rich. Target rich environment. 
you got to say, you know, if whoever owns air superiority or air supremacy over a battlefield can basically do what they want. You can certainly see that in this battle, too. But the other yeah. thing, too, Frank, I have not seen this many helicopters being employed yeah. in a battlefield like I've seen during this fight in the Ukraine. OK, yeah. And I know, I know that in the Navy, you had the S3 Sea Kings on the carrier decks and, of course, on the destroyers and cruisers that were also doing anti-submarine warfare stuff with yeah. you, too, weren't you? Yeah, the Hoovers. We called them Hoovers because <laughs> their engine sounds like they go, ooh, and it sounds like yeah. a vacuum cleaner. Oh, yeah. The Hoovers. Yeah, there was, I don't know what ASW planes are using on the carrier now. Well, the S3s are all gone. You know, yeah, and I, I think I they've pretty much left it up to the helos that are on the on the cruisers. Maybe that's maybe that's the, what they're the doing. Destroyers. Yeah, oh, the helos were very effective. We've exercised with them, and they were very effective. The subs hate them, but the helos. Oh yeah, they, they skip around. They can find them. Well, and and you know, you mentioned the SOSIS line, and I remember somebody telling me that in fact some of the SOSIS sensors were so sensitive that they would actually pick up the TU-95 bear bombers running around. They were really, really good listening devices. You know, tell me how accurate is the movie, The Hunt for Red October? Oh, yeah. Let me see. That's the one that had Sean Connery in there. As, yes. Uh, yes. As the, uh, as the Russian. Yes. Skipper. Yep. Uh I would say uh, it, it was uh, Tom Clancy. If Tom Clancy had anything to do with the you know writing the screenplay or anything, yeah. I would say that it was pretty pretty close on. But there was a little uh, like any Hollywood thing. There's a, there's a little there's a little bit of inaccuracy. So I would say uh, that's probably an interesting you know sub to sub interaction mm -hmm. uh, movie to watch. Yeah, see, I was living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the time. They're near the sub base. And I had a guy and his wife that lived above me who was a lieutenant commander on the subs there. And he told me, he says, man, there's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't think we could talk about because it showed the process that they had for hunting subs like you described, you know dropping all the yep. son of boys and, and listening. And, you know, it sounds like Frank, that when you were doing this, there was a lot of boredom, long periods of, you know, what they always say about flying <laughs> long periods of boredom interrupted by short intermittent periods of extreme terror, you know, <laughs> and it sounds like that's what sub hunting kind of was as the guys in the, well, you know, for you guys up front, you're flying the plane, the guys in the back may be pretty busy, but up front, you know, you're just kind of, I'm just flying the plane and all of a sudden things get really intense when you get one of these microphone hits, don't you? Set battle condition one. Set battle condition one. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's, here's a little scary antidote talking about boredom. Uh -huh. Okay, so in a, in a night mission, uh, in a P2, uh, in the med, uh -huh. and, and we it was an all-night mission. So we're going along and I'm, uh, I'm in the co-pilot position. I noticed the, uh, the pilot was asleep over beside me. Uh, looking out, it was dark and everything. You know, I, was, I, I thought I saw like the uh, outlines of like mountains, you know, in, in a yeah. far distance. And we we're on this on a heading that was heading in that direction. We used to use the, you know, we, I said, uh, nav pilot, nothing. Taco pilot, nothing. Oh, Radar no. pilot, nothing. Ordnance pilot. Everybody's just sleeping on a plane, but me. 
Oh, everyone man. on the plane was asleep but me. And so I, I, I forgot how what, I had to jostle somebody, literally jostle them, uh-huh. get the radar operator to tell me, you know, what was up ahead. And finally, I, I woke them up and sure enough, it was an island. Now, then we were at an altitude where we would, probably would not have, have cleared the, the tops of the hills. That was one of the scary ones there. I was the only one awake on a whole plane of 11 men. You know, and I have flown, and I'm a, I'm not going to go into all the particulars of this, but I have flown with a whole crew that was hungover. Oh God! From, yeah, from that's a good. very <laughs> wild night the night before. Again, I like I mentioned to you, I'm a member of the LDS Church, so I don't drink. And I was a mm-hmm. co-pilot, and they just said, "Mark, just get us out to the refueling area, refuel <laughs> the C-141, give him whatever he wants." And then get us home. <laughs> and my navigator was virtually asleep on his desk. Yeah. Behind oh, him, yeah. his head down on his desk. And the pilot <laughs> I was flying with, the aircraft commander I was flying with, he's all hung over and, and is not doing very well. But they knew since I was a member of the LDS church that I wasn't hung over and I could and I could fly the plane. And I literally flew the whole entire mission. And boom operator was in the back. And he said something to like, man, I'm burping like crazy. I, I've got these alcohol burps and everything like that. Oh, I, fortunately, we didn't have a boom interphone and the C-141 pilot crew are like going, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the mission was fairly close to the base that I was assigned to. So we mm-hmm. weren't going very far. It was really a pretty easy mission to get to and from. And, but I'll never forget, man, turning around, talking to the nav and he didn't answer me. And he's got his head down on the desk yeah. and he is out cold. Yeah. Well, and my aircraft true. commander <laughs> looking over at me saying, don't you dare tell a soul about this. That's right. Yeah. You know, well, that's, we had to keep quiet about a lot of stuff in those days. I mean, some of it was court martial stuff. We looked, you know, we looked after one another. Oh, yeah. And you know what? They knew I'd get us home. They knew I'd get us back down and everything like that. But man, it was really (laughs) spooky, man, flying with this crew, like, you know, because their heads are all nodding back and and they're a little fuzzy in the in the head. And and you know what? (laughs) I took advantage of their condition as we were coming down out of altitude. I turned the autopilot off. And I shook the airplane really good. I went, I went like stop to stop on the ailerons. Okay. Or something like that. Okay. And everybody woke up and goes, what are you doing? And I started laughing and laughing and laughing. And they realized what I was doing to them. Okay. They knew I was poking the bear. <laughs> they're all screaming and hollering at me and there's all kinds of expletives going back and forth and everything like that, you know, and I'm just over there laughing and carrying on. And the nav says, okay, co we're doing one to a full stop, one approach to a full stop. And I thought to myself, you know, I could really screw up this approach because <laughs> he doesn't know where he's at. I came down and I think I said over interphone, okay, crew going around. And everybody's like, no, don't go around, land the plane. You know, (laughs) I haven't, I haven't told people about that. Little do they know what the guys out there work for a living really did. 
Little well, do they know at the, the top levels. But you know what, Frank? Back in the 80s and stuff like that, when I came in the Air Force, it was like a golden period of flying, Frank, because we could actually rent the KC-135. We call it an off-station trainer. Mm-hmm. And we had to put paperwork in like a month before to say, we're going to go to Salt Lake City in February. We're going to refuel FB-111s from our base as they do uh, low-level missions through Colorado. We need three crew chiefs to come with us. And we did that every February to Salt Lake City. You know why? So uh, we could geez. go skiing. Of course. <laughs> we would take the airplane out. One crew would fly one day and one crew would ski one day. And then the next day we'd switch. And that was perfectly legal back then. We had a crew that arranged with the Navy. They put the basket, the drogue on the back of the airplane, had three crew chiefs with them and went to Roosevelt Roads for a week to refuel a Navy carrier air wing that was getting ready to deploy off to the med. And they, they go like the Navy was like going, how do we get this? How do we arrange this? How do we schedule this? And it was just because this one crew said, Oh, Hey, down on Roosevelt roads, these Navy airplanes are going to be down there for a week. Let's go down there on an off station trainer. They put all the paperwork in the, the wing DO approved the one of the colonels on base approved. And they went down Roosevelt roads for a week. I mean, we could fly the airplane as long as we had receivers, we could go wherever we wanted to go. And on top of that, being a co-pilot, we had the ACE program, the Accelerated Co-Pilot Enrichment Program, where we'd come off of alert, we'd have four days off, and we'd go fly the T-37, you know, do three hops in a day. We'd, we'd take off from Pease, we'd go to Plattsburgh, we'd go over to Brunswick, the Navy Air Station at Brunswick, and then come home. And we were getting flying time, and we were being told, you're not flying enough. You're not flying enough. You're not flying ace enough. And this was shortly after I met my wife. Okay. So I'm dating my wife at the same time. You know, you talk about all these Top Gun movie things and you mentioned that your wife was a model. Okay. Oh yeah. And it was like right out of Top Gun. I had a brand new Ford Thunderbird turbo coupe. My fiance, soon to be my wife would drop me off at the ACE detachment. I'd go fly the airplane for a while. And I tell her, okay, come back and get me in about four and a half hours, you know, four and a half hours. I'd land post-flight, do all that kind of stuff. And she'd be the waiting for me to hop in the car and go home. I mean, it was a really incredible life. Sounds great. <laughs> I know. And and see, you guys were doing the same thing, you know, flying around and doing stuff, training. And man, you could get away with a lot by just saying, I'm going off to do a training mission. My crew's going to go do a training mission. Okay. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Hey, Frank, this has been great stuff. And, uh, Man, I learned a lot today. That was one of the greatest times of my life was flying in in the Navy. Oh, and it sounds like it. But you know what, Frank? You have brought up some stuff today that I have never heard of. Like you guys retrograding to Brazil and stuff like this. This is great information that listeners love to hear. And, And I always tell people, you're going to hear things for the very first time on this show. And you've said like three different things today, Brazil being the one of them that I've never heard anywhere else, anywhere else. It's probably classified and probably the guys in the dark suits are going to come after me. <laughs> Don't yeah. tell them where I live, okay? I won't, I won't. <laughs> all right, you and I are all under assumed names now. So anyway, so I want to thank you for being on and uh, spending time with us today, okay? Okay. This was a fun episode, folks. Special thanks to Wall Pilot 
custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar for sponsoring this episode of the show. By the way, in the show notes, you can buy a profile of the P2V Neptune that Frank flew in the 60s, four foot, six foot, eight foot long, by clicking on the P2V icon in the show notes. I wanna make you all aware of something that's happening. As many of you probably know, Colonel Gail Halverson, the famous Berlin Airlift candy bomber, passed away in February. On the 20th and 21st of this month, Friday and a Saturday, they're going to have a special memorial service for him here in Utah, in the Utah Valley. They're going to reenact the candy bomb from a C-54 that's flying in from the Berlin Airlift Historical Foundation. Kids will be able to tie up candy bars, parachutes. They're gonna take them up in the plane and drop them on Spanish Fork Airport. The Air Force is bringing in a C-17 and they're going to do a renaming ceremony Friday night and rename the airplane the Spirit of the Candy Bomber. And I've seen the artwork for it, folks. It's really cool looking. It's a C-17 from Charleston Air Force Base that's coming out. Airplanes will be open for tours. I found out today there may be even some more warbirds coming like P-51s out of Washington State. If you're within striking distance of Provo, Utah, come the 20th and 21st of May to celebrate Colonel Gail Halverson. Previous episodes of my show can be found on my website, markhasera.com. So please have your friends and loved ones go visit my website and listen to all of the podcasts that are there. This makes episode 24, so we're moving right along here. Folks, thanks for listening and coming in and visiting with us today. I hope you really learned something about the 60s Cold War, and we'll talk to you again next week.